God, we thank you so much as we stop and reflect on what you have done in 2017, what you've already done in 2018. God, we are um, just beyond ourselves that you are a God who is so, so good to your children. God, even though we've had people go through the valley this past year and have struggled with different trials and difficulties, God, we still declare that you are good, that you are faithful, that you don't leave your people, God, that your promises are true. So Lord, thank you for all that you've done and all that you will continue to do. Lord, we think about tomorrow and celebrating Martin Luther King Jr. Day and God, we just give you praise for the work that you did in and through him. And God, as we reflect on comments made uh, this past week, God, we cry out to you that there is more work to be done in our country related to racial reconciliation. So God, we pray that you give our church wisdom about our role in that here in Fishers, Indiana. God, would you continue to lead us and guide us. Lord, I pray now as we turn to your word, Lord, I pray that this would be so much more than just an intellectual exercise, but I pray that you would do that mysterious work of of communicating to our hearts through your word, by your spirit. So God, be at work, I pray, in Christ's name, amen. Well, last week, we kicked off a new eight-week sermon series called Multiply, Gospel Movements in the Book of Acts. And over the next couple of weeks, we'll be walking through specific texts in the first 11 chapters of Acts, really for the purpose of answering three mission-critical questions. I shared this last week, but just by way of review. Number one, the first question we're seeking wisdom on is, what were the ingredients for the missional movement of the early church? Each week, we're going to identify a different ingredient or a different component Uh, that if you put them all together, caused a gospel movement to take place in the book of Acts. So we want to know what those are. The number two, what unique mission is God calling College Park Fishers toward in 2018 and beyond? And the number three, what is your spirit-empowered mission? How has God uniquely gifted you? What kinds of experiences and backgrounds has he given you And what is your assignment in order to multiply the gospel here in this community? So last week, we looked at the first 11 verses of chapter one and considered what does it look like for a church to not be a cruise ship, to not be a battleship, but to be an aircraft carrier? In other words, we talked about how the church shouldn't be the end all where the only ministry that takes place is here on Sunday morning, but we talked about what a church looks like when it is a discipleship factory when the church is more of a a sending agency that equips you in order to live out the mission of of Christ in everyday living. Now, we want you to multiply the gospel at home and at your workplace and in your neighborhoods and at the YMCA and at Starbucks, no matter where you are, to be able to live out the gospel of Jesus. So last week, we looked at the first ingredient for a gospel movement, which was all about vision. We spent time unpacking Jesus's vision and mission for the church in chapter one, verse eight, and we considered the questions of what is our Jerusalem? What is our Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth? We even personalized chapter one, verse eight, and we inserted our name and we said that Jesus's mission for our church is this, but you, College Park Fishers, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you 
and you will be my witnesses in Fishers and in Hamilton County and Indianapolis and to unreached people groups to the end of the earth. We believe that Jesus is calling us to that. So because that is true, our vision that we talked about last week is for us to multiply the gospel deep into our lives and for the gospel to multiply wide throughout the world. That we want the the gospel of Jesus to get so deep into our souls and deep in our bones that it's maturing us, that it's mobilizing us into uh, multiplication, reaching people here in this community and to the ends of the earth. And we really view your Jerusalem and your Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, those are the three arenas that God is deploying us to. That if we're an aircraft carrier, those are the the battlefields that we want God to move us in. And this is a really important sermon series for us, especially in this season that we're in. Because I want you to know that raising money for a permanent building is, is not the purpose of our church. That's not the goal. That's not what wakes me up in the morning. But I want you to know that the, the permanent building will be a tool to help us accomplish this mission more effectively. That I wanna put front and center for us to continue to rehearse that the mark of a great church is not in its seating capacity, but it's in its sending capacity. That our scorecard for what a healthy church looks like is not the biggest church and the most people, but it's in our ability to multiply the gospel wherever we are. And so this morning, we're gonna turn our attention to the second major ingredient for a gospel movement that we see in the book of Acts, which is prayer, prayer. Now in seminary, uh, one of my seminary professors told my class that if you want to make a congregation feel guilty, you'll preach on evangelism, on tithing, or on prayer. And I have to say that if you've ever preached a sermon on prayer, I I feel guilty. I felt guilty after the first service, just feeling the conviction of the Lord in my own prayer life. I think the truth is, is that most of our personal prayer lives are not very robust. And yet, please hear this this morning. The last thing that I want you to walk out of this room with is guilt. That's the last thing that that you and I need right now is, is like more guilt to be heaped upon us. Like, I don't know about you, but I feel, I feel guilt almost daily. Like guilty, I'm not a better husband. Guilty that I'm not a better father. I'm not a better pastor. I'm not a better friend. I'm not a, a better Christian. Like that is something that I know I wrestle with uh, every day. And so the last thing I want your heart to be filled with is this sense of guilt because your prayer life is not very robust. Furthermore, Guilt is a horrendous motivator in any area of our lives. So if you walk out of here and you feel challenged and motivated to have a better prayer life, but you're being motivated out of guilt, that's, that's not gonna last. You might have a better prayer life for two weeks, but if guilt is the motivation, it, you'll, you'll revert back to your old prayer life. And furthermore, I think guilt is so far removed from the biblical vision of what true prayer produces in our relationship with the Lord. Like biblical prayer produces intimacy with God. It brings us closer to him. It brings a type of satisfaction with God. And so guilt shouldn't be anywhere near this topic. And maybe just to hopefully uh, disarm you a little bit more with this topic. Can Can I just say out loud that praying is difficult? 
Can I just voice that here from the pulpit? Like even, even for me as a pastor, like I've gone through my own prayer droughts in, in my relationship with the Lord. And hopefully it's, it's safe enough for me to admit that, that man, like there are times in which I feel like I'm just talking to the wall. If there are moments in my prayer life, like I feel like a robot. Like I get done praying and I'm like, didn't I just say the exact same thing the previous day? Like I get, I get in these ruts from time to time and I even like ask the question, what, what is the purpose of praying? Like I don't feel like prayer is doing anything. Like I, I wrestle with those things. I struggle with, with having a consistent prayer life and I don't, I don't know if you can relate to any of that. Maybe just to encourage you further, many of the, the most mature Christians throughout church history actually struggled with having a consistent prayer life. There's a long list of guys that I could just list for you this morning. I'll just give you two. The first one is Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was the famous uh, British preacher in the 20th century, and he said this about prayer, that everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. (laughs) When I saw that, I was like, amen. Yeah, that's right. I feel that. Another person for you that struggled with prayer is actually John Bunyan. He's the author of The Pilgrim's Progress Puritan preacher in the 1600s. He was well known for his godliness, his knowledge for the scriptures, his ability to preach well. And yet he often voiced struggling with prayer. And specifically, he struggled to to be with God as he prayed. It wasn't that he wasn't praying. It was just that he felt God was distant in his prayers. I, I don't know if you can relate to any of that, but no doubt praying and prayer is a difficult matter. So again, my hope for you today is not that you be discouraged about prayer. I hope that you'll feel convicted today, but I hope that you don't feel discouraged. I hope that you walk out of here thinking, man, I, I have such a great need for God, I must pray. But I want you to see the role that prayer has in a gospel movement, okay? So I don't want you to walk out of here thinking, man, my prayer life is poor. I must pray more. No, I want you to say, this mission is so big. God is so good that you must pray. That's what I want you to be thinking about as you walk out of this room, that there is a gap between how we live and the mission God has called us to, and prayer fills that gap. So what do we learn from the book of Acts about prayer? Well, last week I mentioned that the author of Acts is Dr. Luke himself. Luke was a disciple of Jesus, an apostle, that he wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts together as kind of one piece but two volumes. And if you've ever read the Gospel of Luke, you'll know that he emphasized the fact that Jesus' whole life was saturated with prayer. Luke shows us this over and over again, whether it was in the baptism of Jesus in chapter 3 or the temptation of that Jesus faced in chapter four. Luke tells us that oftentimes Jesus got alone to pray in chapter five. Chapter six, we see Jesus spending the whole night praying. Chapter chapter nine, Jesus is praying. Chapter 18, Luke tells us that Jesus taught his disciples always to pray. Chapter 23, Luke shows us that Jesus' last breath at the hour of his death was prayer. If you read the Gospel of Luke through the lens of how much we should pray, it seems like the point that Luke is making is this, that if Jesus, who's the God in flesh, felt like he could do nothing on his own and was so driven 
by a desire to pray, why do you and I go throughout our lives with so little prayer? Like it seems like Luke is challenging us with the question of, do we think that we're more capable than Jesus? And even when you look at the book of Acts, like the second volume of of Luke's masterpiece, we're gonna see this as we study this, but prayer was the foundation of the early church. Prayer was the the secret behind this gospel movement. Prayer is mentioned over 31 times in Acts. It's mentioned in 20 of the 28 chapters. And if you go through this, you see prayer being a key focal point in Acts chapter one, verse 14, which we'll look at in just a moment. Chapter two, verse 42, the apostles devoted themselves to prayer. Chapter four, verse 24, they prayed for an outpouring of signs and wonders and persecution. Chapter six, they devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. It's on the same level. Acts chapter nine, Peter prayed for the sick. Chapter 12, church prayed for Peter to be released and so on and so forth. I'm not gonna read the whole list, but prayer was absolutely foundational for the early church. And so here's here's my pastoral concern for us this morning. That when you think about the gospel of Luke and you think about the book of Acts, what was fundamental for Jesus and absolutely essential for the early church, has it become supplemental for us at College Park Fishers? Like has, has prayer become just something that we do on the way to ministry and not the ministry itself. See, for the early apostles in the early church here, they, they looked at prayer as the ministry, and it shows. When you look at Acts chapter two, they pray for 10 days and 3,000 people get saved. I know we're wrestling with what's prescriptive and what's descriptive, but I think that what we find throughout the book of Acts is that it's almost more important to talk to God about people than it is to talk to people about God. And even though we wanna do both well, but prayer was such a, an important priority for the early church and the salvation of others. And so since we're gonna be talking about a, a lot about prayer this morning, I just wanna provide a helpful definition of what prayer is. And this won't be a full study on prayer this morning. I'm just connecting prayer with its role in a gospel movement. But here's a definition from from Tim Keller. He says that prayer is a personal, communicative response to the knowledge of God that turns theology into experience. I really like this definition because it starts with God. It starts with having the right understanding of who God is, and prayer is just a response based on who you believe God to be. And what prayer does is it, it turns our head knowledge and, and it helps move it into heart knowledge and feet knowledge. That prayer is that vehicle that takes all that we know about God and it stirs up our affections and our desires for God, helping us to actually live out what we know to be true about God. And so I wanna take that, that definition and apply it to the book of Acts and the, this gospel Movement, And so let's look together at Acts chapter one, verses 12 through 14. Acts chapter one, verses 12 through 14, the word of God reads this way. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. 
And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. So, what's the connection between prayer and multiplying the gospel? Well, three ways. Three ways that prayer is a key ingredient. Number one, prayer is unifying. Prayer is unifying. Last week, we looked at the fact that the resurrected Jesus had spent 40 days with his followers, that he was teaching them about the kingdom of God. He was explaining to them that the coming of the Holy Spirit would come upon them as they wait for him in Jerusalem. And he also taught them about his mission that would change the world. As we look at verses 12 through 14 in chapter one, I wanna first highlight the fact that the apostles were waiting in obedience. Jesus commands them to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit, and that is exactly what they do here. They travel a Sabbath journey, which was about three quarters of a mile to Jerusalem, and they wait for the Holy Spirit. Now, I won't unpack this fully this morning because I don't believe this is the main thrust of the passage, but I'll just, I'll just plant this thought for you to take it and to further wrestle with. There seems to be some type of relationship between obedience and prayer. Dare I say, even answered prayer. Now, I'm not alluding to some type of um, prosperity gospel as if if you obey God, God's gonna answer that prayer for a new car. But something that you see throughout scripture and specifically in the book of Acts is that when you are following Jesus and doing what he says, he seems to be committed to answering your prayer requests that are spiritual. And if you're in a small group, you can maybe uh, wrestle with this further with your small group and your small group leader. (laughs) Small group leaders love when I just drop this bomb and then walk away. Um, But wrestle with with, with this idea. Look at 1 John chapter 3. It seems like, and you see this in the book of Acts, that followers of Jesus obey Jesus and they pray and prayers are answered. And even here, we see the apostles who are waiting on God for the Holy Spirit by praying. I want you to know that their waiting was both providential and strategic, that their waiting was commanded by Jesus. It was absolutely vital to what would happen. And look, when it comes to multiplying the gospel in your Jerusalem, don't make the mistake that waiting is a waste. Let me give you a few applications to that point. Number one, embrace waiting. Embrace waiting. Look, if God has you in a season of waiting on him, embrace it as the prelude and preparation for what he has next. Bank your life on the truth in Isaiah chapter 64, verse four, that says, God works for those who wait for him. Embrace it. Number two, work by waiting. Work by waiting. Don't make the mistake of thinking that prayer is only the preparation for the work of ministry. But waiting on God is the work of ministry. 
Look, if you've ever gone through a season of waiting, you know this to be true, that there are things that God wants to teach us that we can only learn through the season of waiting. And so prioritize it and view it as invaluable. Number three, prioritize waiting. Prioritize waiting. Be sure to build moments of prayerful waiting on God in your life, in your family, and in your ministry. Look, without this important rhythm, it's easy to to slip into the pattern of self-sufficient ministry. But prioritizing prayer challenges our self-reliance, that waiting on God is never a waste, that it is vital for the multiplication of the gospel because of what waiting does in our own souls. And so we see the disciples who are waiting, but they're also praying that Luke tells us that they are all together. And it seems like in this passage, Luke is emphasizing the togetherness of the disciples here. He emphasizes the actual unity that they're displaying as they pray together. In verse 14, in the Greek, it says that they were in one accord, which means they had one mind, one heart, and that they were unified. Luke describes the the apostles who were together. He uses uh, the word they over four times in these three verses alone. He seems to be making a point at what prayer does to a group of people, that it actually unifies us. And I think that's true because there's nothing that's more intimate, more spiritual, and more aligning that fuses hearts together than when you pray with other believers. And I think the way that that prayer unifies a group of people is simply through this shared experience of prayer, God mysteriously aligns hearts together to a common mission. Like when you're praying and you're by yourself and you're pouring your heart out to the Lord, no one else is hearing that. That's just between you and God. But when you do that in front of other people and you're praying together with the saints, you have other people who are in tune to your heart that they're listening to what your, your heart's burdens are, to what your fears are, to what your joys are. And as people's attention are directed to God, it has a way of aligning us and uniting us and fusing our hearts together towards a common mission of God being at work. And so this morning, you might be praying well privately and personally, but are you praying well together with other believers? Do you pray with people inside the church. In Acts, there's an emphasis on the praying together because it unifies. And look, whatever unifies us, that should be a high priority because a unified church is so rare in today's culture. It's always stunned me when I read John chapter 17, where we have a long recording of Jesus's kind of high priestly prayer to God the Father. And what's always stunned me about Jesus's prayer as he's interceding for us is the one thing that he asks for us is unity. That's always stunned me. Like, out of all the things that the Son of God could have asked the church, could have asked us to have, he prays that we would be one as he and the Father are one. See, even Jesus highlights the need for unity, and it is by prayer that we are unified together. Now, why, why the emphasis of unity here? I think it's because Jesus knew that the mission that he would give in chapter one, verse eight, is impossible without unity, that our hearts must be aligned for a gospel movement to occur, and the best way for that to take place is through praying together. 
when the church is prayerless, it is because we have drifted from a collective mission. Or to maybe put it positively, a church that understands her mission in the world will be a church that prays together. Like you've heard the phrase before that couples that pray together stay together. Statistically true as well. Let me give you another phrase, that churches that pray together live on mission together. And the reason for that is because it unifies, and that's exactly what we see in the early church. Now, not only does prayer unify, but another reason why prayer is a key ingredient to a gospel movement is because prayer demonstrates dependency. It demonstrates dependency. We see the apostles here who just received this mind-blowing assignment from Jesus in chapter one, verse eight. This daunting assignment that would eventually change the whole world. And notice what the very first thing the apostles do after given that mission. They pray. They don't go to seminary for more training. They don't go to some conference to learn about leadership principles. They don't develop some type of strategy or a 10-year plan. Now, all those things might be important, but for the early church, the core commitment and priority was prayer. And I think the reason for this is because prayer demonstrates a full dependence on God. That consistent prayer reveals the fact that you understand your neediness. Look, theologically, that's true, that we're all needy. We're all in need of God. But when you consistently pray, you are demonstrating the fact that you understand that and that you've come to terms with that. A faithful prayer, it it reveals that you actually believe the words of Jesus in John chapter 15 when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Like how one pastor put it, he said that the core of effective and consistent prayer is not discipline, but it's desperation. I thought that was so good because, man, oftentimes when I'm talking to people and we're talking about prayer lives, I often hear the the saying that, yeah, I I just don't have a a good prayer life because I'm just not a disciplined person. Like, I'm I'm organic. I like things to be loose, and that's just how I live my life. Or I, I don't know the technique of prayer. I don't know how to pray. And yet, look, that's not the reason why many of us don't have a consistent prayer life. The reason is because we haven't come to grips with the reality of how desperate and needy we are before God and God Almighty. In other words, when you are desperate for God, it doesn't matter what type of technique you have or what kind of personality you have, you will pray. And Paul Miller, who wrote a book called The Praying Life, I think it's one of the best books on prayer out there, he defined prayer as bringing your helplessness to Jesus. I love that. Like that, that's so true. That's kind of how I feel in my own prayer life. Like you have nothing really to offer but your own need, your own helplessness. And thinking about prayer through that type of lens will actually cause us to pray even more. Look, prayer is, is arguably the most objective measurement to our dependence on God. In fact, I would go as far as to say that the things that you pray about are the things that you trust God to handle. And the opposite is true as well. The things that you don't pray about are the things that you're trusting yourself to handle. And so I think our pride is is oftentimes exposed in how little time we spend praying. Paul Miller goes on to 
talk about if you're not praying, he kind of gives this, uh, this diagnosis of that reality. He says, if you're not praying, you are quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in life. He says, you'll always be a little too tired, a little too busy to pray, but if, like Jesus, you realize you can't do life on your own, then no matter how busy, no matter how tired you are, you will find the time to pray. So desperate people pray consistently. And yet, at the same time, like, I just wanna caution us here a little bit. Don't view prayer as inactivity. Okay? Don't, don't think that prayer is not doing anything. Okay, I, I sometimes hear that from time to time, that like some people will say, yeah, I'm not doing anything, I, I, I'm just praying. And, and I hear that uh, both positively, as in, yeah, we're not, we're, not, we're, we're not gonna make a decision until we first pray about this, but I also hear it negatively of, man, all, all you do is pray, you don't do anything. And, and I, think, I think we need to understand that prayer is part of obedience. See, we live in a culture where we, we prize activity and obedience and, and doing things for the Lord so much that we can at times create this false dichotomy between obedience and praying. And, and oftentimes, like in our, in our own lives, the hardest seasons of our lives tends to be when we lack clarity. And for us as followers of Jesus, like we just want to know what to do. Like we wanna know what the Bible says so we can obey God. Just, just tell me what to do. And so sometimes we reduce prayer to the means by which we attain clarity in order to obey. That prayer is just something that we do on the way to obedience or on the way to ministry and not part of obedience and ministry. And I think there's a danger here because we can actually trust in our own self-sufficiency because we don't pray for all things. Let me just give you a simple illustration this morning to maybe highlight this. Like if, if God was asking me to go down here and pick up that chair and bring it back up here on stage, our knee-jerk response is to say, okay, God's clear. I see that chair. I can lift it on my own strength and so I'm gonna bring that up here on stage. I have clarity, and so I'm going to obey the Lord. A part of that's good, that the obedience, the desire to obey the Lord is awesome. But what tends to happen is if that chair is what God wants me to go pick up, and that chair is hidden somewhere in the room, like I can't find it, I can't see it, I have no idea how heavy it is, that's usually the time when we pray. It's the times in which we don't have clarity. It's when we don't know what to do and yet we want to obey the Lord. When in reality, in both situations, we need to be praying. We need to be a people who prays in, in obvious obedience commands that God gives us and even in those seasons in our life when we don't have clarity and we don't know what to do because prayer demonstrates a dependency upon the Lord that I need to be praying that God would allow me to go down and pick up that chair in a way that would magnify the name of Jesus. Even though it's obvious, even though I know what to do, I need to drench that in prayer. And the reason why I share that is because I would suspect, and I know this to be true because it's true in my own life, I would suspect that underneath a lot of our obedience is, is a layer of pride and self-reliance. I think that we're competent people. I think that 
we love the Bible and we study the Bible and we know a lot of the things that we are in need to do. And yet I think underneath a lot of that is our self-sufficiency that's driving our obedience. And the reason why I know that is because I know it's in my own life. It's because of a lack of consistent prayer. Because prayer is an assault against our pride. It's an assault against our self-reliance. And it is a way that we demonstrate our obedience. So I just want to challenge you to maybe take this principle and and think about how it might change what you pray for and and how you pray for things. Maybe it changes the way that, that you need to start praying for the things that you're especially confident in, not just the things that you might feel weak or lack clarity in. Because prayer demonstrates our dependence upon God. Number three, prayer also releases the power of God in and through our lives. Prayer not only unifies us, not only demonstrates dependence upon God, but prayer is key in a gospel movement because it releases the power of God. Now, I say this not to say that prayer has some type of control over God as if we can manipulate his power. No, no, no. Prayer is not getting God to do our will, but prayer is opening our hearts up so God can do his will through us by his power in his spirit. As it's been said before, that when we work, we work, but when we pray, God works. And it's interesting, when, when you think about what Jesus has promised, you can understand that prayer does release the power of God. Because Jesus promised in chapter one, verse eight, that there'd be this coming Holy Spirit. And when he comes upon us, we would receive power. There's this resurrected power of Jesus that lives in us by the Holy Spirit. And we know in Romans chapter eight, verses 26 and 27, that one of the major roles of the Holy Spirit is to help us pray. And so if you put those two points together, you can say that when we pray through the Holy Spirit, there is an unleashing or a release of God's resurrected power in and through our lives and in the things around us. Look, there are countless examples of this going on throughout the book of Acts. I think one clear example is Acts chapter four, where you've got Peter and John who have been released from being questioned by the Sanhedrin. And we see them in verses 29 through 31. They're they're praying, they're praying for boldness. And the text says, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I'm not saying that the prescriptive principle there is when you pray, the ground's gonna shake. But I think the universal timeless principle is this that when God's people gather to pray, God's power goes forth. Look, I want this third point to to kind of fall on us as more of a challenge this morning, that perhaps our greatest obstacle in living out the mission that Jesus has given us is, is not having a lack of clarity. I think our biggest obstacle is not, is not having a permanent building right now. I think our our biggest obstacle to living out the mission of Jesus is not that we're only three years young as a church, but I think our biggest obstacle as a church trying to live out the mission that Jesus has given us is the tendency that we have to try to do it on our own strength and our own power rather than the Holy Spirit's power that lives in us that has this resurrected strength from God Almighty. 
that far too many of us, me, me included, like we, we don't live consistent lives where we are experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit because our prayers are prayers coming from self-sufficiency instead of out of desperation for God to be at work. Like that's true for me too. Like I want more of this in my life. And so how do you live in the Spirit's power? How, how, do, you, how do you release the power of God in your life? Well, I think it's, it's stepping out in faith and, and trying to live out chapter one, verse eight. I think it's, it's taking that leap of identifying the mission that Jesus has given you to take the gospel to unbelievers and to mature the gospel in believers around you. And when you step out in faith, you're going to experience a gap in your life. When you try to share the gospel with an unbeliever, you're gonna have that moment of, oh my goodness, I don't even know what to do here. I don't know what to say. When you're trying to disciple somebody and there's an issue that comes up, you're going to be in need of a power outside of yourself. You're gonna be living in that gap. And that gap is filled through the Holy Spirit, something that we attain by prayer. Look, I, I don't want this sermon to cause you to, to look at, at your prayer life and to, to consider how poor your prayer life. Look, I want you to understand how big this mission God has given us and to conclude, man, we need and must be a people who pray. Look, don't you want more of God in your life? Don't you want to experience the resurrected power of Jesus living in and through you more consistently? Don't you read the, the book of Acts and you think about, oh my goodness, look at, look at how God works through his people. Don't, don't you say, man, I want that for my life. I want that for the people around me. I want that for my church. Look, I, I want that so badly. And, and it happens as we step out and live out the mission that Jesus has given us so we can experience that gap and we can experience that need that causes us to be a people that prays. That gap could be spiritual. That gap could be financial. I think we'll experience that gap as we give, and we give selflessly and generously for the capital campaign, that we're gonna have those moments as you're filling out those commitment cards, I know we did, of writing that number in there, and you have that gulp moment, like, all right, God, you're gonna have to fill this gap. And when we do that, when we step out in faith, we see the Holy Spirit fill the gap. So I hope this morning that you feel, you feel the need to pray. Not, not guilt, but you see this mission and you see how good God is and you want to pray. So maybe you're wondering, well, where do I begin? Maybe you're thinking, I don't have a consistent prayer life. How do I, how do I kickstart this whole thing? Well, let me give you three Three application points to close today. Number one, create a plan and start small. Just create a plan and start small. Look, we, we do this in so many different areas of our life where we identify maybe a weakness or maybe a change we wanna make in our lives and we usually figure it out. If we're tired day in and day out, we usually conclude, man, I probably need to go to bed earlier the night before. Or if you gain a few extra pounds, we think, okay, I probably need to cut back on some sweets or make a plan and, and develop more discipline in my life. Well, let's just take that same principle and apply it to our relationship with the Lord in prayer. I love what, um, what Jen Wilkins said a few weeks ago on Twitter. She said this, she said, church leaders, notice how many of your people are posting their commitments to wellness. Discipline is not dead. 
It just chases the most compelling and actionable message. If they can do Whole30, they can commit to serious Christian discipleship. I think that's true. So if you're wondering where to start, where's a good plan, let me suggest taking that 40 days of prayer and scripture reading through the book of Acts that, that we've created for you, just take that and use that as a guide over the next several weeks to maybe jumpstart a more consistent prayer life. Gives you a passage of scripture to read and then just one thing to pray about uh, through the book of Acts. But start small and create a plan. Number two, focus on God, not praying. Focus on God, not praying. This sounds strange maybe at first, but don't focus on what to say or how to say things. Just focus on God. Focus on beholding him. Focus on being in all of him. And you'll notice your prayer life just take off. Because again, prayer is a response to all that God is. That the more clearly we grasp who God is, the more our prayers will be shaped and determined accordingly. Paul Miller has another just amazing quote about this. He says, oddly enough, many people struggle to learn how to pray because they are focusing on praying and not on God. Making praying the center is like making conversation the center of a family mealtime. In praying, focusing on the conversation is like trying to drive while looking at the windshield instead of through it. Like getting to know a person, God must be the center. So your prayer life is a reflection on how you see God. And so your prayer life will grow as your knowledge and your all of God grows. Last thing here is to use scripture to pray. Like if you're like me and you struggle, what do I say to God? I feel like I'm saying the same things. Like just use scripture and turn them into prayers to God. This, is, this principle here has really changed my prayer life over the last several years. Even walk through the Psalms and read a, a verse or two and then turn that verse into a prayer to God, whether thanking him or asking him to continue to be true of what that Psalm is saying. We have a, a book that we're giving away today. We've got a few copies left. It's called Praying with Scripture by Donald Whitney. I highly recommend it. If you're wanting to know how to apply this principle more, they're over at the Next Steps table if you wanna grab it. We've got a few left. And in fact, we're starting something new where we're gonna highlight a different book each month and then Dustin Crow's gonna write kind of a summary in the e-news just to help um, maybe equip our church a little bit more. But highly recommend that book to you to help pray using scripture. So church, as we, as we close today, just last thing that I'll say, we are, we are just in a really exciting season. I know it keeps saying that, but there aren't a whole lot of seasons in a church in which you go through a capital campaign and you see the Lord just show up. And I just wanna say that, look, we wanna be wise and good stewards of this season. That's why we've used an outside consultant that's why we have a game plan of different giving streams. That's why we have a building committee and a vision and a strategy. We, we believe that God has been clear in asking us to take this step and move forward with this campaign. But look, more than anything, what we need during this season is to view our obedience to what God has laid out for us, not just in giving, but also in our praying. That our step in being obedient has almost more to do with if we're praying about this than if we're actually giving. Because look, Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers will labor in vain. And so look, I just wanna challenge you. Will you come to our next prayer and worship night? 
We do a monthly prayer and worship night as a church to seek the Lord's face together. Will you mark it in your calendars to come and to seek the Lord together? The next one is January 28th at five o'clock. Will you come and pray? Look, you're, you're not too busy to pray. You're not too tired to pray. You just need to be a desperate person who wants God to be at work in your life and in the life of our church. And so look, for the sake of our neighbors, for the sake of our city and our world, we must be committed to praying together. That multiplication happens in powerful ways when God's people get serious about prayer. Let's pray together. God, thank you for being a God who is open and available to hearing the prayers from your people. God, thank you for the Psalms that tell us that you are a God who bends your ear to your people. God, that you wanna hear from us. And so God, I pray that you would challenge us to understand how big this mission is, how good you are, and that that would motivate our prayer lives. So God, we, we wanna love you more. God, we wanna know you more. We want the resurrected power of the Holy Spirit to, to move freely in and through our lives, and we know that that starts with prayer. So God, help us to be a, a people who pray. In Jesus' name, amen.